Two great podcasts, Coach. Can't wait to hear what you have in store for the future. Have a good one. Good luck, country. Coming to you from the Tanglewood Studios on the Baseball 101 Network, this is the Baseball 101 Go 6 Podcast. So thanks for jumping on the Go 6 Podcast and welcome to the show. If you're here, you found us on the Anchor app. You might have found us on Spotify or some other platform where podcasts can be found. On the Anchor app in particular, there's a message button. And if you tap that message button, you'll be able to leave us an audio message, whether it be a question or a comment. That's actually how we open the show tonight. One of my former players, Adam Mashad, had been listening to the first two podcasts and left a nice comment, so we opened the show with that. We have another message that came in in the form of a question, so I'll be answering that a little bit later, but I think that's going to be a really cool feature where listeners can interact with the show and actually get on the podcast, and we'll use some of their valuable information with regard to questions and comments, and it'll really help with content for the show. I think that's going to be really great. This has been a lot of fun. We've had some Great positive feedback so far via Twitter, uh, via text message to me. So we're going to continue to work hard at it, try to get 1% better, as we talked about in a previous episode. Try to get 1% better every week. Try to work on the sound, make sure the sound's good, make sure the transitions in and out are good, make sure the guests can be heard pretty clearly, and continue just to try to work and get that better. We have a great show planned for you this week. We're going to talk about Major League Baseball for a little bit. We're going to get into coaching and what it takes to be successful coaching as a head coach and assistant coach at various levels. We also have a great guest for you this week, great guest. He is a three-time National Coach of the Year. He's a two-time National Champion, a great man of faith. Uh, tells some great stories and has some fantastic insight, Andy Lopez from the University of Arizona. So that'll be fantastic. Uh, We will also have our playlist song of the week, which I should mention, if you're listening on another app besides Anchor, you won't actually hear the songs. You'll hear some of the background music or the transitions in and out, but you won't hear the real songs on those other apps. But for the playlist song of the week, we'll explain what song it is, and maybe you can go check it out and add it to your playlist. Matter of fact, today I was at the gym, really got into REO Speedwagon. Loved it. Just uh, one of those times where the timing was right, and really enjoyed the playlist that I had today, the REO Speedwagon playlist. So who knows, maybe one of their songs will end up on our playlist song of the week. But we're excited to get going here on the Go 6 podcast, and we'll be back in a minute.
So mentioned we were going to talk about how to be successful in coaching, both as a head coach and an assistant coach. And there are two things that are absolutely paramount with regard to being a head coach, an assistant coach, running a program. And those, in my opinion, are coaching philosophy and a culture. Those two things, I think any experienced coach, any coach who's had any success or in, or, and or enjoyed their career in coaching will tell you that they have a coaching philosophy and they have a culture in their program that's pretty defined. A coaching philosophy isn't easy to come up with at first, but really it's a little self-evaluation as far as asking yourself, what am I doing? Why am I coaching? Why do I want to coach? What are some of my core values? What do I really believe in? Do I believe in a tremendous amount of respect out of my players? Do I, re, re, do I believe in great effort? Do, do I believe so strongly in sportsmanship? And coaching philosophy is very important because it sort of gives you your compass, your moral compass and your compass for your program. Many years ago, in an exercise that I did for a coaching class, we had to come up with a coaching philosophy. And over the years, 17, 18 years, my philosophy has changed. I've added some things to it, taken some things away from it. But my coaching philosophy in written form sounds something like this. Through diligent commitment, preparation, and enthusiasm, Provide the best experience possible for student-athletes. Create an environment which develops high-character people who will carry a hunger for success and a winning attitude into life beyond baseball. So that's my coaching philosophy as we speak today. That could change weeks from now, days from now, months from now. Part of where that came from was when I got into coaching, I really, one of the first things that came to my mind organically was that I wanted players that were in our program to leave the program having a great experience. And years later, look back at it fondly and say to themselves or other people, I really enjoyed my high school experience or my college experience or my summer ball experience. I really enjoyed that. I got better along the way. I learned some things that helped prepare me for life. And all of those things, in thinking about all those things, if you notice, we're not necessarily talking about wins and losses, although practicing some of those things, uh, the wins sort of take care of themselves. So coaching philosophy is something that every coach should have and take time developing and don't think you're going to come up with one in a day, in a night, in an hour, keep revising it, adding to it, revisit it. And the biggest thing is hold yourself accountable. Occasionally, I'll look at my coaching philosophy and ask myself, am I doing all these things? Am I living up to what my coaching philosophy is, what I wrote down, what my values are? And if I'm not, I need to do a better job of it. And if I am, that's fine, but I may need to modify, add some things, take some things away. But with regard to coaching philosophy, I think it's something that if somebody asks you, you should be able to describe it in 
two or three sentences. Mine's a little long, quite honestly. I think there are several other coaches who will tell you, and you might hear Andy Lopez talk about a philosophy of his today, but um, I think some other coaches will tell you that theirs is a little shorter, but it should be all-inclusive. It should be very descriptive. So coaching philosophy, very important with regard to running a program, being a coach at really any level, whether it's little league, whether it's uh, youth baseball, travel baseball, high school, college, summer ball, and I'm sure major league coaches have, professional coaches have a coaching philosophy, and I'm sure at times throughout their career someone had asked them, what's your philosophy? So very important at every level to develop a coaching philosophy. The next thing in a program would be culture. And culture is really something that you develop over time. It takes a lot of time if you're new to coaching or if you're new to a program. So, for example, I coached high school baseball for a while, left high school baseball, went to college, coached summer collegiate baseball, went back to high school with a new program, developing a new culture. It takes time. It takes time. Culture really is expectations, values, beliefs, attitudes, behaviors that are shared by your team. And everybody should know over some time what the culture is, especially your older players and your captains. After a few years, they should know what the culture is. Team members should understand it. There should be common goals. There should be trust. Um, An all-in attitude where everybody buys in. Um, Another example would be input without fear. In other words, players have some input into what they think maybe a practice plan should be or the team needs to work on overall, and they should be able to have some of that input without feeling afraid that it'll work against them in some ways. Uh, And after a while, culture sort of runs itself, and and again, We'll talk to other coaches along the way in this podcast, but I think many coaches would agree that culture developed over time ends up running itself a little bit. In our culture, um, in my program, some of the examples of our culture are attention to detail, servant leadership, where we are, our goal every day really is to serve others to do well for others, not necessarily just in the community, but within our team, within our team. I want our guys to walk out on the field and find out how they can help somebody that day get better, how they can help somebody that day uh, become a better player, a better teammate. Um, And that's what servant leadership is to us. I think we would say that our programs, un- our players in our program are uncommon. They're not average in any way. Uh, we stress accountability. Those are just some examples. Another culture item would be allowing players to play without fear, to play loose on the field. Another thing that Andy Lopez will talk about later as far as how he is in practice versus how he is in the game and allowing the players to play fast and loose and not worry about, I made a mistake, and the coach is going to take me out. Pitcher made a bad pitch. He's looking over to the dugout thinking he's going to be taken out. So as far as I'm concerned, 
I have jotted down about eight attributes that are important in culture, or that could be good examples, and they are one, respect, two, trust, three, results-oriented. Everybody's got to be results-oriented. Um, we're, we're working hard. We're doing these things because we want positive results, and everybody has to be on board with that. Teamwork is, it almost goes without saying, player engagement with the coaching staff, player engagement with regard to input on a lot of things. Accountability is another one. That's my sixth one. Being purposeful is another one. Out, out in practice every day, we are doing things with a purpose. I used to tell our guys many years ago at East Hampton High School, we're doing everything in practice with a purpose. We're not going to do things for the sake of doing them just so we can say we ran a certain drill because University of Texas runs this drill. No, we ran this drill because it's pertinent to what we're trying to do. We need work hitting the ball the other way. We're going to, do, you, we're going to have a drill that puts the tee in a certain place that allows us to get our hands through and hit the ball the other way. So every single thing we do in practice is purpose purposeful and um, the, another important part of culture. And one of the biggest things that I personally feel is important and probably should be on the top of anyone's list with regard to culture, and that's communication. Communication between coaches and players, coaches and coaches, players, coaches, and parents. We have something we call the triangle of communication. And that's where we convey a message to the players. The players convey that message to their parents. And everybody's on the same page. Triangle of communication. So if we tell the players we're leaving for Florida on a certain day, it's their responsibility to tell their parents that we're leaving for Florida on a certain day. That is, goes along with responsibility and accountability but it's communication, the triangle of communication. If we are talking to a player about potentially switching positions, let's say he's a catcher, and now we're going to try him at third base, and he's been working out at third base for a week, and his parents come to a game, and they see him play third base, and they're taken back by that because there was no communication between the player and the parent. The triangle of communication broke down. Then we have a problem. So we want the players to communicate Everything that goes on in practices, in games, in meetings, so their parents are on the same page and there's no surprises. Some parents show up to the field expecting their son or daughter to be playing a certain position, and they're not. And sometimes that's frustrating to a parent. I've been on both sides of that. I've been a parent. I've been a coach. So for me, it's super important and part of our culture that communication is one of the top priorities and the triangle of communication is very, very important. Again, your older players over time are the ones who will be able to carry out the culture. I have had older players tell younger players, you're a minute late for practice, that's not going to work here. You are not wearing the proper practice gear, that's not going to work here. And it's a beautiful thing to see your culture over time sort of run itself. So successful coaching, part of it, coaching philosophy, and work on having a great culture. Just remember that it takes time. 
Thanks for joining the Go Six podcast. We're so blessed and grateful to have our next guest, retired and legendary coach Andy Lopez. His 38-year career coaching, coaching career includes more than 1,000 wins. He has taken three programs, Pepperdine, Florida, and Arizona, to the College World Series and has won two national championships at Pepperdine in 92 and 20 years later at the University of Arizona in 2012. And to think, Coach, all of this started with a prank phone call. <laughs> Coach, Coach, thanks so much for joining us today. We really appreciate it. Um, we are trying to kind of target coaches, players, and parents, and I think having you on today is a blessing because we can get some good uh, coaching information. We appreciate it. Well, again, thank you so much, Scott. And, uh, yeah, the game was uh, really good to me and my family and, you know, in terms of what we were able to to see and experience, and uh, anything I can do to give back, I, I you know, I'm more than more than happy to do so. But, uh, but yeah, the prank phone call, the magical prank phone call. <laughs> I had a buddy of mine. I was 22 years old, 23 years old. I just got out of UCLA. I was drafted by the Detroit Tigers. That's another story in itself. I didn't sign. I was a ninth round draft pick and did not sign a contract. I, I, I truly believe it was the sovereignty of God as I look back on it now. But at the time, I was a young guy, and I'm, you know, I really didn't know Christ as my Lord and Savior at the time. But, but, uh, but you know, I was, I was just, you know, busy trying to play the game. And lo and behold, um, I went and worked uh, one year uh, at the junior college that I attended, and uh, L.A. Harbor Junior College here in Los Angeles, California. Sure. And um, and uh, a, a dear buddy of mine, we grew up together in, my, in the same hometown, San Pedro, California. We used to play prank phone calls on each other. We would literally call each other up and say, "This is." Bob Smith with the Cincinnati Reds. Can you come over to Peck Park, which is the local park in our town? And at 11 o'clock on Saturday, we're going to give you a workout, maybe sign you a contract. <laughs> and, oh yeah, we do these things. And so I get done coaching my uh, my first year there at the junior college, and um, and I get a call. And you know, there's no cell phones in 19. Uh, what was it? God, was it 76, 77, something like that? 1977, I guess. I get a call and I uh, and I hear this voice say, "Is this Andy Lopez?" Yes. Well, this is Dick Jacobson, superintendent of schools. Blah blah blah. And I don't even hear the rest of it. I hang up. Bam. I just hang <laughs> up because that's Bobby Ramirez. That's my buddy. We're playing, sure. Play, sure. Play phone calls. Well, I don't take two steps away from the phone landline. You know, again, no cell phones. I take two steps away. Go where I'm. You know, whatever I'm going to do. And phone rings again. I pick it up and there's the same voice. And I realized, oh, my gosh. <laughs> so I said, Mr. Jacobson, would you please forgive me? I thought this was a prank phone call, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. He proceeds to offer me a job at Maricosta High School teaching five classes of freshman Spanish, uh, varsity baseball coach, and frostball football coach. And uh, I, had, I wasn't working at the time. I, was, you know, I worked for free at the junior college. And I was doing some you know, little things here and there. I was longshoring every night, every, every now and then on the docks which is a big thing in my hometown, uh, Los Angeles Harbor. And um, and uh, so I took it. I said, I got nothing to do. I'm not making any money. I, yeah, let me take this thing. So I, I took it, and I was there for five years. That's great. That's a fantastic story. Loved it when I heard it and loved hearing it again. Uh, once you're Now you've started at Miracosta. Uh, at what point did you realize, hey, wow, this is really something I, I really enjoy this. This is something I really want to keep, keep yeah. going, keep doing. Okay, I've got to be honest now. You've asked me to do this, so I'm going to be honest. Sure. Uh, uh, I started in 1978 at Maricosta. I did that for five years. After that, I went to a place called Cal State Dominguez Hills. They offered me the job, a Division II program, and I took it, a college job. 
and I did that for uh, six years. And then I, at the end of that six-year period, I was offered the job at Pepperdine University. And in my fourth year there, which was 1992, now I started in 78 at Maricosta, so the math majors out there can do the work on this. I'm bad with numbers. So in 78, I took the job at Maricosta. I did it for five years, and I went to Dominguez Hills. I did that for six years. And in my fourth year at uh, Pepperdine University, the Lord bless us, we won the national championship. We beat sure. State Fullerton, Augie Garrido, and won the national title. And on the flight home, my wife, um, I got married my second year at Dominguez Hills to my wife. And uh, on the flight home, uh, my wife nudged me in the arm and went, you probably need to stay in this profession. She said that. <laughs> she said that because in 1985, I tried to take a job with UPS and get out of the profession. In 1991, a year before the national championship, I, I accepted a job uh, with an uh, insurance company as a management position. And I, t- I took it for one day, uh, literally for, for eight hours, and woke up the next morning and realized I, 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 I can't do this. So I, I said, Hey, I made a mistake. I know what I said last night. It's very embarrassing, very humbling, but I'm going to stay in coaching. And well, lo and behold, next year we win the national title. Um, so I was trying to get out. Again, not many people believe this, but this is a true story. Remember now, I took the prank phone call and took the job at Maricosta. Why? Because I didn't have another job. Yes. I never applied for a job in my entire career. I didn't. I To this day, I don't have a resume. Um, I just worked hard where I was. That's what I told young coaches forever. Just work really hard where you're at. Believe that where you're at is the big time. Don't look at other things. Just look where you're at. Don't don't compare. Just do a great job right where you're at. Someone will notice, and they'll come knocking. And uh, and I did it. So I I I. But here's the other thing, the truth to it. And I love the profession. I really did. But but I wasn't pursuing the profession. I really wasn't. I was not pursuing the profession. I was pursuing uh, my faith, uh, and I was pursuing excellence. And and because of that, I believe that, you know, God opened doors for me at, uh, you know, the places I ended up coaching. Sure. And I've, I've heard someone say before, you know, be, as a coach, be where your feet are, do your best mm-hmm. job where you are. And like you said, things, opportunities may present themselves. Oh, without a doubt, um, without a doubt. Absolutely. As a new coach, when you first started actually coaching, how did you learn about coaching? Was it trial and error? Did you have Oof. mentors? Well, I was very fortunate. I played for Gary Adam at UCLA. He was a great college coach, and I learned a lot from him. I was a shortstop, so I learned a lot from him. I was captain of the team, so I, you know, I, I kind of got a lot of uh, I got a lot of information from Coach Adams. Dear, dear friend, great coach, um, and um, and I came from a really good baseball town, San Pedro, California. There's a lot of big leaguers that came out of that little town. There's only 40,000 people in it. It's in Los Angeles. It's about 30 miles south of uh, LAX. But, you know, guys like uh, Gary Maddox who was a Golden Glove winner for the Philadelphia Phillies when, they, when, they, when he played there. And, you know, Alan Ashby played 14 years in the big leagues with the Houston Astros. Sure. Joe Lovito, Eddie Urak, Brian Harper was a catcher on the uh, Minnesota Twins uh, World Championship team. Guys like that, we, were all, we all grew up in the same town. And we really taught each other the game. But in terms of coaching, in terms of managing uh, the game, game management, uh, budgets on the field, uh, parents, alumni, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, I really got thrown in the wolves, so to speak. I mean, literally got thrown in the wolves. Um, and so I've made this statement quite a few times, too. 
There's a lot of things that I can teach you if I sat down with you and said, okay, I did this for 38 years as a head coach. I was an assistant for one year, head coach for 38 years. I can teach you a lot of things, I think, uh, just because of my experience. But you know what? The best things are the things you're going to get caught. In other words, C-A-U-G-H-T. You're going to teach – you know, I can teach you some things, but you're just – some things you're just going to catch. It's just going to sure. happen. And, sure, uh, sure. you know, the first time you mess up the budget, the first time you, you, you realize, ooh, I should have handled that phone call a little better with that parent, the first time you, you, uh, you, you know, you, you, have, you have a tough loss and you've got to go to an alumni function and, and put on a happy face and you don't. You know, uh, you, I learned the hard way, so to speak. Um, I had great people that I admired. Uh, that I, I played against and coached against, you know, the John Scalinuses, the, the Jerry Kindles, uh, Augie Garrido, uh, Skip Bertman. I mean, I, 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 Mike Martin, I, I, I was fortunate to coach against really good coaches. And, um, and, and, you know, the beauty of that time of life is I could go to those guys and literally say, Coach, how about this? You know, I see you guys are doing this. What about this? And you know what? I don't know how it is nowadays, but boy, I'll tell you, those guys were so receptive to a young coach. So, so I had a lot of mentors, Mark Marcus, Mike Gillespie. I had a lot of good people in my life, and, uh, and they helped me. They helped me along the way. Yeah, I feel like baseball lends itself to that maybe more than even other sports, having coached a little bit in other sports at lower levels. But yeah. baseball, it seems that coaches, especially ones that have been in the game a while, really enjoy sharing information and, and helping younger coaches. I know many, many helped me along the way. That's yeah. really great, good stuff. And I would encourage um, a young coach to ask those old guys. Don't feel sure. shy. Ask them. You'd be surprised. I, I couldn't believe how many times young coaches would say, oh, coach, I want to give you a call. And I'd say, yeah, give me a call. And, and, and they say, oh, well, I know you're really busy. I'd go, oh, yeah, everybody's busy, though. Like, you know, the plumber's yeah, busy. yeah. A banker's sure. busy, you know, a house painter's busy. But call me and we'll talk. We'll talk about sure. the game. So, yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I've heard you say uh, multiple times that practices belong to you and the games belong to your players. Can you elaborate on that philosophy a little bit? Yeah, yeah. You know, again, as I you know, probably heard over the you know this interview, like the most important thing in my life is my faith in my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And it's been 40 years now since I surrendered my life to Christ. And um, but I was a really – I grew up in the projects. I, I was in a street gang for two and a half years, not like gangs of today. Thank God. Man, oh, man. But, you know, you know, 15 Mexican kids in Rancho San Pedro, we call ourselves the Persuasions. And, you know, I wish I could say we were out selling Boy Scout cookies, but we weren't. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so I had a real toughness to me that was ingrained in growing up. Um, and so even in, in my faith – I joke with people a lot. I, I was more of an Old Testament guy <laughs> than a New Testament guy. Right, you know, right. In the sense of it was, it was sometimes very difficult for Andy Lopez to turn the other cheek. I'm not gonna lie, and I and I hated losing, and um, and I and I demanded excellence. Uh, I'm a very disciplined man, and I demanded it out of my program. So I was very intense as a coach during practice. During practice. Man, practices were mine. If if I started yelling or screaming or we're going to run sprints or we're going to do this, they belong to me because ultimately my goal is to get these young guys ready to be successful. Everybody wants to be successful. There's a scoreboard out there, and they're keeping score. It's you know, And I used to tell my players all the time, hey, fellas, man, the clouds aren't made of cotton candy, 
and and the bushes over there in the right field corner, you can't eat those. They're not they're not gumdrops. Sure, I mean, it's, sure. It's reality. They're going to keep score. And the higher levels you go, the more you swim with sharks. I want to prepare you to go to the Division One level. I want to prepare you to go to pro ball. I want to prepare you to to have a, a, a to have a great marriage, to be a successful businessman. And the reality of that world out there is it's tough and it's not fair. And anybody that tells you it's easy and it's really fair is lying to you. So practices were mine, and I ran them the way I wanted to. Uh, I'm sure many, many people would come to my practice and walk away and say, there's no way that guy's a Christian. But I was, and I loved my Lord with all my heart as I do now, but I loved my players, and I wanted to get them ready for life. Games, I said, belong to them for this reason. I didn't want them doubled up in concentration. I didn't want them looking at me if they made a mistake. I didn't want them looking at me if, uh, it, was I happy, was I sad. I tried to teach my athletes that practices were mine, pay attention to what I'm saying and my, what my staff is saying, and be diligent to give every effort to, 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 not only, to not only understand it, but to apply it and to retain it. But games, they're yours. I'm going to sit over here in the corner, and you make the biggest mistake in the world. I'm not going to say a thing. I may talk to you tomorrow at practice, but I'm not going to say a thing. And, and, and you get the biggest hit in the world, you know what? I'm going to pat you on the back. The games are yours. The game's a hard game, so I want you to concentrate on the game. I don't want you to be concentrating on Coach Lopez or anybody on staff. Uh, again, are they happy? Are they sad? Did I make a mistake? Are they, you know, are they upset because I made it? No, no, no. Let's get that out of the system. So I made that real plain to our guys, and, uh, and I think they understood it because our practices were very intense. And, uh, and games, uh, quite honestly, like I said, I, you know, we sat there and I said, I'm going to try to make the decisions and put you in the right situation to succeed. But ultimately, you're swinging the bat. You're throwing the pitch and you're catching the ball. I'm not doing it, you know. So sure. go get it. Sure. Go get it and have a good time doing it. Yeah, it sounds like such a sound philosophy because you watch a lot of games at every level. And a lot of times when there's mistakes made in game oh, yeah. play, whether it be baseball, even basketball, I see it probably even more where the player's immediately looking over to the bench. Exactly. Um, exactly. Now sometimes maybe over to parents too, but mostly to the bench and, and you right. know, look, am I going to come out? Is he mad? Right. You know, that kind of thing. Right. Um, right. I think that's a really sound philosophy, and, and, and it allows them to play free and easy, which ultimately right. helps, helps the program, helps the team. I agree, one one thousand percent. That was my, my that was my philosophy, in a nutshell. Games were mine, or practices were mine, and you know if I came out and and, and jumped around like a nut for two hours, that was because I thought it would help us. But you know the next night at the game, I'm going to sit over in the corner. I mean, you're, you're barely going to find me. You know, I didn't coach third base. Sure. I did early in my career, but toward middle of my career, I started just staying in the corner of the dugout. And you know, you guys go, man. It's your day. Have a good time. Sure, absolutely. I've been dying to ask uh, you this, and I and I love asking this question of a lot of different coaches at different levels, but uh, especially at the highest of levels. I'm going to take you back to the 2012 College World Series with with Arizona. You're an out away from the championship with a 4-1 lead, but the bases are loaded. I mean, it's not easy. Uh, can you recall what's going through your mind at that exact moment, and then? <laughs> The feeling when you see the lazy fly ball to right field uh, yeah. that's going to hopefully wrap it up. Ironically, this is, you know, after 38 years of coaching, I mean, or 30-something years at that time, but you know, I've been there a few times. I've been to Omaha a few times. 
and, and was fortunate to win the national title. But the line drive before the flyout was the was I, I probably I was to very candidly very candidly I was really relaxed. Mm-hmm. I mean I know bases were loaded. I know their catcher was up. Who's end? He's playing in the big leagues now. But I, uh, but the, the they had a young man. I don't recall his name. But the line drive before the flyout was a line drive that I thought was through the out through the infield, and I thought, okay, we're going to be, you know, we're going to be up by one run. They're going to get two runs on this, so it's going to be four to three. Right off the bat, I went, okay, that's four to three. Now, what am I going to do with this next pitching decision? What have you? It went right to our second baseman, and it's probably the greatest base running I've ever seen by a base college base runner. But there, I thought line drive double play. We just won it, and yes. their runner at second got back, and he was there, and he was safe. Yeah, but yeah. After the play, I didn't even go out and argue the play. In fact, I was in awe of it. And Ray Tanner's a dear friend of mine. He did a marvelous job at South Carolina. Great coach. But I remember thinking at that time, after that play, if that ball didn't get through. We're in pretty good shape. <laughs> right, right, right. Just, sure. Just because the game is, you know, I, I've been, hey, I've been on the other side where you make a great pitch and he blooks it over the first baseman's head, and as much as you don't want to think this, you're going, oh man, something, something ain't going good here. There's right, going to be some. Right. There's a momentum switch here on that bloop base hit. Sure, you know, that sure. Base hit. So as soon as the line drive was caught by our second baseman and didn't get through, I felt pretty good, even though it was base load. I went. I think we're going to be all right here. And, you know, yeah, we got the yeah. lazy fly ball and we won the thing. So I was more wrapped up on the bat the, previous to that one. Sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah absolutely. Yeah. Interesting, great, great stuff. I know your bio, and I know, you know, everybody who interviews you goes through the bio, those national championships and all the successes. But I've heard you speak pretty candidly and pretty eloquently as to why that's not necessarily your identity. In fact, I've heard you say, um, the phrase, I'm indifferent to human achievement, but have a passion for excellence. How do you explain that? And how do you think that helps, helped you or helps anyone in coaching? Yeah. Um, in 1992, I took a team, Pepperdine University. We went to the, uh, we went to the College World Series. Um, I'm going to give you kind of a long drawn out answer to this question, but I, but I think it, it's, it's, it has to be answered this way because sure. it's, it, it's, it's what happened to me. And up until 1992, I was, you know, I was like every young coach, trying to be successful, trying to keep his job, trying to, you know, trying to, trying to climb that so-called ladder. Uh, I got married in 1983, and so my bride, we had four children. They're all kind of out of the house now, but you know, they're little guys back then. And I'm at Pepperdine University, and we take a team to Omaha, and we win the national title. Now the kicker to it is at the banquet before the uh, tournament starts, they ask every coach to come up and, and introduce his team and say a little bit about their team. That year, Ron Fraser from Miami was there. Augie Garrido was there. Mike Martin was there. Uh, Bob Alano was there. Uh, uh, you know, there were some real heavyweights there, right? Sure. And, here, and here's this 37-year-old Mexican kid from L.A., from Pepperdine University, and and uh, we show up, and the guy that's uh, uh, the, the MC says uh, – he says, and now we're going to have the Pepper Dean head coach. It's Pepper Dean. <laughs> we're going to have the Pepper Dean. We're going to have the Pepper Dean head coach come up and uh, tell us a little bit about his team. And so I kind of, you know, okay, that's okay. He didn't, you know, Pepper Dean wasn't a. They haven't been there a lot. You know, they haven't been there a lot. You know, so I understand that. He says, okay, Al, you want to come up here? Hey, Al, come on up here. <laughs> Al Lopez. So, 
so to this day, to this day, when I talk to my players from that program, they call me Al as a joke. Hey, Al, how you doing? Sure. That joke. And every now and they'll say, hey, coach, you think they understand how to say Pepperdine now? And I go, yeah, I think they do. But anyway, now that's the premise to this whole philosophy. We win the national title. So we win the dang thing, right? We're, we're now the national champions of college baseball, 3,000 students, you know, and all the rest. A year to the exact day the next year, the very next year to the exact day that we won the national championship, I was at uh, Los Robles Hospital with my mother-in-law, my father-in-law, my mom and dad, and my pastor, and my four kids running around me. My wife was going in for thyroid cancer operation, and they weren't sure if it had gotten into part of her, different parts of her glands, what have you, and it was a six-hour operation. And I remember sitting in that hospital and saying, Lord, I don't ever care if I win another game. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. I just want my wife. And I want her healthy because i got these four little kids, and how the heck am I going to raise these kids and so on and so forth. Well, she was fine. It's great, and thank God everything's been fine ever since. And from that moment on, I said, you know what? This can't be my identity for one reason. A year ago, I was on the top of the world, but that has no factor on what's happening in this hospital for the next six hours. Sure. So, so from that moment on, I said, I will have an indifference to human achievement because it's easy to get caught up in human achievement, to look at all the awards, to look at the people slapping you on the back, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, and you lose your identity in that. My identity will be that I will be a Christian man, a good father, a good husband. I will seek excellence, but I will not allow the awards and the accolades to be my identity. So I said, I will have an indifference to human achievement, but I will seek excellence. I'll have a passion for excellence. As a husband, as a Christian, uh, as a coach, you know, I'm going to get after it. I'm going to get after it, but I'm not going to let it be my identity. And so that's basically where, where it all stems from is I, 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 and I taught my athletes that, you know, every, all the kids, all the young men that played for me after the two national championships know that I, I pulled them in after the game. And I said, fellas, we just won the national title. What a phenomenal moment. You'll remember this moment the rest of your life, but it cannot be your identity. Your identity is who you're going to be as a man, as a husband, as a father, as a son, as a businessman, what have you. But it, this can't be your identity. But, man, is it a great moment. And, man, it's a moment. You, you need to cherish the moment. But it's but a moment in your life. It can't be your identity. And sure, sure. Sadly, in athletics, sometimes uh, we allow it to become our identity. Yeah, and, no, absolutely. And, and you know what? You have the highest of highs, and then you know where, right, Scott, you have the lowest of lows. You have the lowest of lows. Sure. And, and yeah, I think it's a great lesson for anyone, really, as an athlete or in coaching, uh, because you do get sometimes caught up in the wins and the losses and then, uh, you know, feel pretty proud and sometimes dwell on the, the wins maybe a little longer than we should. Oh, just, yeah, just like no. we dwell on the losses a little longer than we should. Oh, I heard you, yeah. heard you talking about how oh, losses, you know, kill you more yeah. than the wins. You know, I often yeah. have conversations with my wife about, you know, I don't know what the more extreme emotion is, the winning um, you know, the great feeling of winning or the just absolute terrible feeling of losing when you look back yeah. and as yeah. a coach you could have changed some things. Yeah, and... if if I could go back and do it, Scott, I would I would I would really enjoy the wins a lot more than I uh the losses disturbed me. Sure, I I, sure. I I was not a good loser 
you know, it did deny my faith, but I'm just being real. I'm being very honest and very realistic is, Hey man, I'm not perfected. Not on this side. You know, I'm still working on, 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 on being the man I need to be and my, the Christian walk that I need to have and all the rest. But, but man, I hated losing. Oh man. And it got to the point in my career where, you know, wins like we're supposed to win, you know, hey, we're supposed to win. Yeah. You know, hey, yeah. On, we're supposed to win. Come on. I've been national coach of the year three times. We're supposed to win. Right. And when we sure. Didn't, and when we didn't, holy smokes, man, it just, oh, my God, it felt miserable. So if there's one advice I would give to a young coach, it'd be, man, enjoy the wins. Losses are going to hurt, but, boy, every time you get one, every time you win one, try to enjoy the heck out of it. <laughs> yeah, precious. of course. They're precious. Of course. Yeah. Hey, so your son, Michael, uh, is a head coach at Howard College in Texas. Mm-hmm. If I were to get him on the line, what are some of the things he would say that you might regularly remind him about when you're talking baseball and maybe giving him some advice? <laughs> well, the first two things I say to him in text messages constantly are two things. Honor God. You know, I say honor your God with your time. Whenever you get some dead time, honor your God in prayer and reading, what have you. Honor your God and teach. Teach the game. Teach the game. I always believe this. I grew up in Los Angeles. I listened to Vin Scully my entire life. My father loved the Dodgers. I'm not a Dodger fan per se, but I listened to Vin Scully because my dad would listen to the games, and he'd have it on the radio all the time. Vin Scully, Vin Scully could tell you when to hit and run or when to steal on base. I heard him on the radio on numerous occasions say in that great voice of his, it's a 3-1 count now. It's a good time to stay out of double play, and they'll probably start the runner up, and there goes the runner on a 3-1 count. It's a good it's a good time to run now. It's a two two count and boom, there goes a runner on two two count. And I thought one day I said, Wow, Vince Scully could coach. Yeah, but Vince Scully couldn't teach. Maybe he could, but my impression is that he probably couldn't teach. In other words, right. there's a difference there's a difference between coaching and teaching. In other words, I tell my son this all the time, honor your God and learn the game so you can teach the game. Teach that guy how to steal second base in a two two count. Teach that guy how to make contact in a 3-1 count so his runner doesn't get thrown out to protect him and stay on the double play. So learn to teach the game. And by doing that, that means you ask older coaches. You get on videos. You buy books. You ask an old guy like me, what would you do in this situation? What would you do in that situation? But you learn the game so that you can teach the game. So that, those are the two things I tell them constantly. Yeah, absolutely. Great stuff. Great stuff. Thanks for sharing that. What can a coach say to his team? You And obviously you've been in, you know, countless huge games. What what can a coach at any level say to his team before a big game that might help them relax a little bit, especially if he sees that they're a little on edge? <laughs> um, my, standard, my standard lines were basically the same thing. Again, understand that practices were always mine. And in those practices, I bet my players heard this statement a thousand times. I'm going to motivate you with the truth. Now, that's a hard thing. Mm-hmm. I'm, going to, I'm going to motivate you with the truth. Now, some people, if they hear the truth, they don't get motivated. In fact, they get destroyed and they quit. But I believe that you have the makeup to be motivated by the truth. And the truth is... The way we're going about it today, we will never see a College World Series. Forget it. Don't even dream about it. Don't even talk about it. Don't even, don't even put it in your vocabulary. 
we're not going about it the right way. We're not concentrating the right way. We're not playing catch the right We're not, okay. And then when there were some days where we were, I'd say, hey, you know, based off of what I see today, you have every right to wake up tomorrow morning, look at your roommate and say, you know what, we can be in Omaha this year. We can get there. So I would always I would do that as a group, and I would do that as an individual player. I was an individual player. What are your goals? And when they would tell me, I'd say, you're not going to you know. In my opinion, you can prove me wrong, but in my professional opinion, what your goals are are not going to be reached because your work habits or because your concentration level, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So let me motivate you with the truth. Okay. Sure, sure. If you've done that from August, you know, September, October, November, December off, right? January, February, March, April, May, June. If you've done that for eight or nine months, if you've been honest with your guys, you've been truthful with your guys, good days and bad days, you've been really honest with guys. You, you win a game 11 to 10, and you make three airs and walk eight guys, and everybody wants to celebrate, and you sit down, and you go, fellas, no, no, that, that, that was horrible. That was horrible. That was brutal. We, we were lucky today. That, don't, don't, no, you can't celebrate that. Mm-hmm. You can't celebrate sure. that. Yeah. Okay? So if you're honest with them, you lose a game, 2-1 to one in 12 innings. You lose it, 12-1. to one. And I have these, you know, I've been on both ends. You lose it, 2-1 to one in 12 innings. You say, fellas, oh, what a great game. Man, we didn't get that break in the 10th inning or another, but, man, what a great game. What a phenomenal. Boy, I love the way you guys went about today. Yeah, it's a loss. We're fine. We're, you know, you got 56 of them. What the heck, you know, there's 56 games, but, wow, what a great game. You keep doing that, fellas, we're going to be in great shape when the season's all said and done. If you do that for nine months, you tell them the truth, I really believe this, and I did this every time we got into big games. I would look them in the eye and say, fellas, you deserve to be here. You can be nervous. You know, you can be a little anxious. Now, get it out of your system as quickly as possible and realize this. You deserve this moment. Now, have a good time and compete. Just compete. Just compete. Just tell me, just tell me when it's all said and done, you're going to look at each other and say, man, we got after it tonight, didn't we? We got after it. Well, that was it. And so it was easy for me to do that because for nine months they've heard me. There were days I'd pull them in in the, in the middle of – I mean, hey, Scott, there were days I stopped practice one hour into practice and, and sent them home. Mm-hmm. Sent them home. Sure, yeah, yeah. You guys don't want I to bet. be here. You don't want to be here. Right. Don't, don't, right. No, 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 you don't want to be here. So you, know what? you want to go home and watch Oprah Winfrey or you want to go home and watch Reality TV? Go home. See you later. I'll see you guys tomorrow. And so I was really honest with them. And there were days at the end of a practice, I'd look at them and I'd say, man, I love suiting up with you guys. Yeah, I love being in the, I, I love being in the same uniform with you guys, the way you go about it, the way you get after it, the way you compete. I love being out here with you guys, man. I really, really appreciate your effort today. So they heard the truth constantly for nine months, sometimes very good, sometimes not so good. And so when you got to that big moment, you look them in the eye and say, hey, guys, you deserve this, man. And you know what? They go out and do it. They go out and play hard. Sure, fantastic yeah. advice. Because, like you said, those those nine, eight or nine months previously, your words in the in the key moments towards the end of the season or in a big game become very believable because oh, they've been yeah. hearing the truth all year long. Yeah, and we all know this. I mean, come on. I, I tell my guys all the time. Hey, it's not who you are out here. It's who you are when you're away from everybody. Sure. Who are you when you're away from everybody? You're all by yourself. Are you working on the game? Are you studying the game? Are you becoming a disciple of the game? The word disciple in the Greek language means a disciplined learner, a disciplined learner. And I used to tell my players all the time, you, I, I, I'm going to coach players this year, 
And then by the grace of God, I'm going to have about 10 to 12 disciples. I'll take 25. But I know there's some players out here. You're players. You're in a baseball uniform. You play at the university. You're a, play, you're a baseball player. Congratulations. But, man, we need about 12, 15 disciples. We need guys that are disciplined learners. They understand the game. They break it down. They're, 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 they're disciples. And, and, uh, and you don't do that in front of anybody. You do that when you're all by yourself. You become sure. a disciple in your dorm room. You become a disciple all by yourself in a room somewhere, and you're learning the game of baseball. Well, I've heard you say that before, and I'm so glad you brought it up because it wasn't on my list of questions about the disciples. And I also heard you say once that out of all the years that you've been coaching and had a lot of success and and in the most humble way, uh, when you talk about that, you've mentioned that you've probably had six, seven, maybe eight guys who have played actually in the major leagues for a long time and had long careers and made a living out of it. And and the reason you mentioned it is because you you were ex- expressing the importance of teaching life's lessons when you're coaching baseball. Right, right. No, I, I, you know what? Um, there's a, a phenomenal scripture in Jeremiah, uh, the 12th chapter, the 5th verse. It says, if you've raced with men, it's God. God is answering Jeremiah's prayer. Jeremiah's complaining. We've all done that. I've done that at least. Complain about the unfairness of this or this guy's. This guy's recruiting and he's cheating. Gosh, come on, Lord. Everybody knows this guy's cheating. He keeps getting players, and now, you know, we're trying to do it right. Da, 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 da. And God responds to him and says, If you race with men on foot and they have wearied you, how will you compete with the horses of excellence? You know, and man, when I read that 40 years ago, I went, Yep, yeah, that's me. I, I want to compete with the horses. And, and I've told my athletes forever, Man, fellas, you have no idea what life has for you down the road. I mean, you know, I've had three of my ex players all lose their wives to breast cancer. And I've stayed very close to all three of them. And, um, boy, when they were going through it, I mean, all I could think about was, wow, how many days were on that field? And, you know, and they thought that was hard. You know, they thought when Coach Lopez was yelling at them or making them run extra spins or doing whatever, da, 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 they thought that was hard. But how many times I, I would tell them, you know, one day, fellas, you're going to really compete with the horses of excellence. Like, this is just men. That's a, this is nine-on-nine nine in a scoreboard. Of course, there, of course. There's, yeah. there's horses of excellence in your life. You know, you might lose your job when you're 50 years old. You know, uh, hey, you might come in one day and your wife says, I'm, I'm not happily married to you anymore. Yeah, I, I don't know, but there's things out there. There's things out there. I mean, I mean, uh, in 2006, I took every Monday off and flew to Los Angeles from Tucson, Arizona, and spent the day with my dad, knowing that he was in the last year of his life. And, you know, and, and then I came home Monday night and Tuesday, I'm right back at the office trying to win baseball games. You know, I mean, that that was no fun. That that yeah. you know, that was yeah, that was that was that was that was hard. So so um, yeah, you know, you, you're trying to get them ready to win a game, but man, oh man, you're trying to get them ready to win life. Yeah, absolutely, Coach. Um, what's a day in the life look like for you now? <laughs> Nothing, and I love it. No, <laughs> no, I, I, you know what? I, I spend as much time as I can with my wife. You know, gosh, she's such, she was such a blessing to me. I mean, she never once in my 36 years of marriage, and you know, I mean, she, you know, she's she has been married to me since the day I took a college job. I didn't know her as a high school coach, uh, so she was with me my entire college career. There was not one day in my wife, uh, or in my relationship with my wife Linda, that she said, you know, where you been, or why are you coming home so late. I mean, I never felt any stress. I mean, if I had to stay extra and work with a guy or meet with a guy or recruit a little bit more than I thought, I mean, I just I knew my wife was going to be okay. And 
and then she raised four, you know, our four kids, and I'm so thankful. You know, I have a great relationship with my four children, um, and so very proud of what they're doing in life. And I spend as much time with him or with her, I should say, and then we go out and see Michael out in Texas as often as we can now that he's coaching. Uh, my other three kids are here in Tucson, so we get out and spend some time with them. Um, and I'm doing television work. I do television work for the Pac-12. I'm a baseball analyst on the Pac-12 network, so I do some games every year and and um, and just relax, relax. And uh, that's great. Yeah, hang out. That's great. Well, we'll be we'll be watching for you in the Pac-12 network. We'll we'll try to keep track of you. Uh, really appreciate your time and and some of the personal. Uh, stories that uh, some of the personal things you shared with us in order to emphasize the stories. And I think I speak for a lot of people that uh, you talk about the identity and you talk about indifference to human achievement, but a passion for excellence. And I think I'd probably speak for a lot of people that although there you have the rings and the national championships and all that good stuff and famous for being a baseball coach, I think uh, the man is what many of us respect and enjoy and I really appreciate you being on the Go Six podcast today. Man, my pleasure, Scott. Like I said, I, I've been blessed in many, many ways. The Lord took care of me in ways I never dreamed, never ever dreamed. Uh, so I'm, I'm, I'm thankful. And if I can give back to, to this game, I, I'll do what I can. So thanks for having me. I appreciate it. No problem, Coach. Thanks so much. We'll talk soon. Okay, Scott. God bless. Bye now. Hey, Dad, love the pod so far. Been a good two weeks uh, listening in on, on usually Wednesday mornings on my ride in. Really enjoyed it so far. Um, I'm going to try to call in with a weekly question every week. Um, this week, um, uh, I'd like to go with, you know, you played baseball starting in, in Little League and, and made it to, and were in Babe Ruth and, and got to the Babe Ruth World Series for several years and played at the division two and then division one level who's the best player you either played with or against in your baseball career so there we are that's an example of tapping the message button in the anchor app and leaving uh, an audible comment or question that's my son tyler who's a big podcast listener and actually was um, some of the inspiration for doing this podcast so Try to answer that question for him right now. As far as a teammate, I played with a guy at Iona back in the 80s named Sam Talisano, and he was probably the most confident hitter I've ever been around at any level, both coaching, and I've coached some really great players uh, at every single level, and this guy was the most confident hitter I've ever been around. I mean, he would go into games and just visualize and tell you that he was going to rake that day. He was going to own that pitcher, and most times he would. And you talk about barreling balls. A lot of times our goal is to barrel a ball a game or something like that. This guy barreled three, three four baseballs a game on the barrel. Uh, he was an amazing hitter. He was part of our conference championship teams in 84 and 85, and he just absolutely raked. The astonishing thing about Sam Talisano is that he did not 
get an opportunity to play pro baseball, which was absolutely amazing. He ran well. He was a pretty good outfielder. He didn't have many flaws. And there was no one that I saw in that time that we played against even that was as good a hitter as he was. As far as an opponent goes, probably the best opponent I ever played against, again, at Iona, was uh, a guy named Shane Mack who played for UCLA. He played on the Olympic team. He won a World Series with the Twins. He was a major league player. But when he was at UCLA, and we played UCLA at UCLA, he was a tremendous hitter, and he did everything. He was an absolute physical specimen and the kind of guy that kind of athlete, when you saw him on the field, you just couldn't believe that he was real. He would look like he was chiseled out of stone. He swung the bat with great authority. He threw exceptionally well, ran the bases well, and he appeared to be a fantastic guy. And I don't think you get to the level that he gets to uh, on the Olympic team in 84, winning a World Series with the Twins. I don't think you get to that level without being a good person as well. So he's probably the greatest opponent I ever played against. Thanks for the question, Ty. Now it's time for our segment, Major League Baseball Talk. Commentary and conversation about the league, where they play for pay. So a little bit Major League Baseball Talk now. Um, first, something very interesting just happened today, uh, which is uh, in relation to the Astros. I had a player that I coached. His name was Jake Myers. He went to Nebraska. I coached him in the summer when I was the hitting coach of the Mystic Schooners. He's come up through the Astros system, and he's an invitee to spring training this year. And he was drilled today in a game, which is pretty interesting because he wasn't on the Astros roster last year or any of those previous years. And he's just a spring training training guy trying to make the team, and he gets drilled today. Who knows if it was on, it was if it was deliberate or not? But just found that interesting. Uh, a connection, you know, that I have who's who's playing now is uh, gets gets drilled uh, in a game with the Astros, spring training game with the Astros. Uh, one observation on rules this year for Major League Baseball: there's going to be a three batter minimum now. And that's the, the rule, really. There's a couple rule changes, but that's the one that's been grabbing most of the headlines. All pitchers, whether they're starters or relievers, they have to face three batters in an inning, or they have to complete that entire inning. And the only exception would be an illness that prevents the pitcher um, from being able to finish those three batters or an injury. The main effect that this will have will be on those role players, those left-handed specialists in particular that come in for one batter. So that's going to be no more. Uh, it'll also affect those recent strategies that managers have where they use an opener, where they might use a reliever that's a really good matchup for the first few batters on the opposing team. They're going to have to stick with that pitcher for more than three batters, and that'll affect strategy. Manager's going to have to think ahead a little bit, and it'll be very interesting to see how that unfolds this year. The other thing that I'm usually fascinated by every year is the numbers that the odd makers put on 
the projected wins and losses for teams. And a couple stood out to me. And again, I don't bet, but I'm going to give you what I think is a lock, and that's the Dodgers over 102.5 wins. They were at about 99 or 100 wins before they got Mookie Betts, so that represented a couple wins maybe. Their lineup's going to be outstanding. Betts will lead off. Muncie will probably bet second. Turner, Bellinger, Seeger, A.J. Pollock, who's a local guy from here in Connecticut, Will Smith. They're going to have a very formidable lineup. Those first four guys in the lineup all slugged close to 600 last year. So they're going to have a really strong lineup. But here's the thing. Their pitching depth is insane. They have Walker Bueller. They now have David Price. They have Clayton Kershaw, who now will be able to pitch without wondering if teams are stealing his signs. They have Julio Urias, uh, Alex Wood. Those, that's their start. That's their five-man rotation right there. And a guy, a guy named Dustin May, who pitched for them last year, I think he pitched, I th- he, had, he had four starts, uh, a 2.72 ERA, struck out 17, and only walked three, and had a whip of 1.08 when he was a starter. Didn't do as well as a reliever. Had like a 5.11 ERA as a reliever. But a guy like him is going to start the season in AAA Oklahoma City. And that's pretty amazing because he'd be in most teams' rotations around the league. But the good news for the Dodgers is that if they do have an injury, something happens, he can he can come right up and fill right in. So their pitching depth is is crazy. They had, I believe, 106 wins last year. There's no reason to think that they won't get more than 102.5 wins this year. That's a lock. On the other side, the under for the Toronto Blue Jays, 75.5 wins. The only significant acquisition they had in the offseason was Ryu, the pitcher from the Dodgers. They had those three guys in the lineup, Guerrero, Bichette, and Biggio, all former or all major league, sons of major leaguers. And that's the big hype. The big hype is that they're, they're big names. They put up some decent numbers last year, but I don't think it's going to be the same this year. They play in a very tough division. They don't have any relief pitching. Their middle relief is terrible. So look for the Blue Jays to win less than 75 and a half games. That's a lock. And that's the Major League Baseball talk for this week. So wrapping up another great show. This is a lot of fun to do, and if you're listening to this right now, know it's very, very much appreciated. You probably found this on the Anchor app or Spotify or some other podcast platform. Remember, on the Anchor app, there is a message button that you can tap, and you can leave an audible message in the form of a question or a comment. We'll take that, and we'll incorporate it right into the next podcast on the air. And it's a great way for listeners to interact with us. And I know I listen to a lot of podcasts, and there are not podcasts out there that have interaction with their listening audience. So I think that'll be a unique thing, and it'll help us continue to grow and be popular. If everyone listening to this tells one other person about it who's interested in baseball in any, at any level of baseball, any subject of baseball, uh, that will also help us grow. So... Really enjoy it. Really appreciate you listening to us. Got to the point right now where we're at the Playlist Song of the Week segment. This week's song is Colt Ford, Answer to No One. 
is the song. It's from the album Declaration of Independence. It's also included on a compilation album of the same name, Answer to No One. Great song. Got to add it to your playlist for the gym or for anywhere. Pretty upbeat, cool song. So enjoy. If you're, if you're listening on Anchor, you'll hear the music. If you're not, look it up, Google it, add it to your playlist. It's been a pleasure. We'll talk to you next week.